Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 tells one of the most significant stories that uh, John puts before us in his description of the life of Jesus. He has selected a series of signs that Jesus performed, and this is the ultimate sign, the resurrection of Lazarus. And the chapter is a drama with a number of scenes. Scene one, it takes place really some distance from Bethany where Lazarus lived and where Lazarus was ill and where Lazarus died. News comes to Jesus that his friend, someone he loves, has uh, died and that raises a number of questions. We'll We'll look at that in a moment. Then the scene we're looking at this evening, which takes place on the, on the boundaries of the town. And then the next scene, which takes place by the grave itself. And then the last scene, which takes place as people are leaving Bethany and are discussing the events and the incident that has occurred there. Well, last time we saw in that first event, a number of themes going on there. The main theme is the love that was going on, bubbling all over the place. I said last time there's a whole lot of loving going on in, in that first little section. It's Jesus loves Lazarus and he loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus as a, as a family. He, he, they love him. His disciples love Jesus. Uh, and, uh, and yet, in spite of that relationship, Jesus delays going back. He delays going back to help this friend who is seriously ill. And there's no doubt that as the story progresses, we discover one of the reasons he doesn't go back is that he is waiting his father's timing. In this last sign, a similar thing is happening as happens in the first sign, where his mother Mary tries to get him to act and do something. Why don't you do something, Jesus, is what his mother says to him. The kind of thing that a mother might say in exasperation to her son. And Jesus rebukes her. And he says, I'm actually not going by your timetable any longer. I'm going by my father's timetable. This is, my ministry is driven by my heavenly father's timetable. He has a plan, an hour for me to act. And this is not it. Until I know from him, this is not it. I don't do what you tell me any longer, mother. I'm outside of your authority now, and I do what my heavenly Father tells me. And it's in obedience to his heavenly Father, his determination to do the right thing at the right time, his Father's time, that Jesus delays going back. But that little incident taught us more than that. It taught us, too, that his going back to Bethany was going to seal the deal in terms of his final affront to the authorities there in, in Jerusalem. That's why we're reminded that Bethany is not far from Jerusalem, two miles, very close. And many people from Jerusalem would be there and would see what Jesus was about to do there. And there is no doubt that the instinct of the apostles, the disciples who are with him, is absolutely right. That if 
he goes back. He's walking into a death trap. And we who know the end of the story know how costly it would be for Jesus to go back to Bethany to be with those people whom he loves there. So in scene one, Jesus is putting it off. He's delaying until it's the right time. In scene two, Jesus has decided to go. It's the Lord, the Father's given him permission. Now he's on his way. And as Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. He's already told his disciples that Lazarus is dead. So he has insight, a revelation that Lazarus has died. And he made that, that very interesting comment, didn't he? Uh, there in verse 14, for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there. Well, that, they must have wondered about that. I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. And that little phrase there is the key that opens up this next little vignette, this next little scene as it unfolds. Because it's this idea of believing that comes to the forefront in this section. Jesus comes to the to the town, and Martha uh, comes to meet him. One of the sisters comes to meet him. Martha, who appears to be more of an extrovert than her sister Mary, more outgoing, uh, more a doer, and an activist. And there's Martha, no doubt, in the midst of all the mourners who've come, and she is seeing to their needs and organizing the whole affair. And she is the one who, when she hears Jesus is coming, takes the initiative to go to meet the Master. And as we look at Martha this evening, we discover that the heart of it is this idea of believing, of faith. And we see in Martha, first of all, the trial of faith the trial of faith. You see, Martha always appears in the Bible as a, as a sane saint, practical, down-to-earth, not, not a lot of pious gibberish to impress other people. Martha just gets on with believing and doing. She just trusts and obeys because she discovered and knew that there was no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. She could have written the song. And I want you to notice as Martha approaches Jesus, did you notice as we read this this evening, that Martha, no doubt, has no doubt in her mind about Jesus' ability and uh, his ability to heal her brother. If he had been there, if he'd been there, that her brother would not have died. She has absolutely no doubt whatsoever. She is a believer. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She is categorical. She is straightforward. She is undoubted. She is a believer. We listen to her statement of faith, but there is, in the way that she frames her statement of faith, a tinge of, of sadness, a question lurking beneath the surface of her confidence, her undoubted confidence in Jesus. And it's captured in the very first word, if, 
If you had been here, my brother would not be dead. Is she wondering, why didn't you come? We sent people to you to tell you why. We don't know why you didn't come. We, we don't understand why you weren't here when he was ill, because if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why so long to come? Even if he had died and you'd gotten here the day he died, or maybe the day after, or even the day after, maybe you could have done something for him. But he's been in the grave four days. And in the popular mythology of people's minds at that time, the spirit departed the body on the third day, and therefore the spirit was long gone. The body was decomposing. Any chance of resuscitation seemed out of the question. Actually, both Mary and Martha, her sister later, will say the very same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I see great faith in that statement. But I also see faith that is being tried. It's going through, it's going through a period of pressure. There's pressure on faith. She's making the statement of faith, and yet there must be questions lurking in her mind. There must be the element of doubt, perhaps. Why didn't you come? And it teaches us something about the nature of faith. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is not the, the absence of questions. True faith in Bible terms can deal with questions and can live with doubts. I remember back in the 80s, we'd just come back from Canada. A friend that worked with me in, in Canada had, had been to Westminster and, and uh, sat at this, beside a guy who had been helping a, a young girl who had been seriously injured in a, in a swimming accident on the Chesapeake Bay. Her name was Johnny. And uh, I used to hear these stories about Johnny. And, and not long after we got back to the UK in the early 80s, I got a tape. I don't know if you remember tapes, cassette tapes. Uh, I got a cassette tape. Johnny was singing a number of songs that she, that she wanted to sing. And I remember one of these songs in which she sang this. She thanked God for giving us the faith to doubt and yet believe that He is really there. And that is the nature of true faith, the ability to doubt and yet believe. I think you hear that in the question or the statement, the confession of Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And you hear her faith again, I think, when she goes on to say, and even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. I know that. She's saying to Jesus, even though Lazarus has died, I'm confident that you are so at one with God that this had to be of God. It must have been God's will that he die. And she may have had a question in her mind. She may have felt a bit disappointed. I'm sure she felt very disappointed. 
But you notice that those feelings, which were real feelings, are not obliterating her faith in the Lord. Now, there's a principle here that we mustn't pass over too quickly. Believers often find themselves struggling with disappointment, riddled with questions, gripped by doubts. And they often ask themselves, or other people ask about them, have they lost their faith at such moments? And the answer is obviously not. You, you have to believe something to be disappointed in the person or the thing. You must be convinced about something enough to question it. There must be some belief in order that you doubt what you believe. So in many ways, doubt is a clear indicator of faith. It's, it's possible, is it possible to attach so much focus on your doubts that your faith falters? Yes, that's true. If you're looking at your doubts, like Peter did when he was walking in the water, you remember, and it was all right while he was looking at Jesus and occupied with Jesus. But when he looked down and he saw the waves and he saw his feet on top of the waves, his faith faltered and he began to sink. If your focus is on your doubts and your questions, then you will sink, you will falter. But let me say this about the faltering faith. Faltering faith, like faith the size of a mustard seed, is still faith. It is still faith, and faith is a gift of God. The only really significant thing is this. On whom is your faith placed? In whom is your faith placed? On whom is your faith focused? All the faith in the world placed in the wrong, directed in the wrong place will spell disaster. But even the smallest, shakiest faith that is built on Jesus will save you from time and eternity. Now Jesus now speaks to her. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now what does he mean? Well, I don't know if he means that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. That would make no sense to, to her. He hasn't, she doesn't know the end of the story. She doesn't get to read the whole story as John recounts it to us now. That would be the furthest thing perhaps from her mind. He could mean that, but I think he means something far bigger than that. I think he's talking about what he will do for every believer. Initially, by giving to every believer spiritual resurrection, and then ultimately giving to every believer physical resurrection on the last day. In other words, what he's doing is he is continuing the delay in giving any kind of clear answer to the question that's go questions that are going on in her mind. He's continuing the delay to resolving the doubts and dispersing the disappointment that she's experiencing. He's kind of elongating the trial by saying something that she obviously believes, as we'll see in a moment. Your brother will rise again. Why is he doing that? Why, why is he not just telling us, okay, Martha, I've come back because I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to raise your brother from the dead. There we, that would be it all over 
you know, smiles all around. Come on, everybody, come and come down, down to the grave and we'll see the Lord raising Lazarus. We know he can do it. Come on. Come on, everybody. Let's get our popcorn and we'll surround the tomb and see it. No, no, he's dragging it out, you see. Why is he doing that? There's a number of miracles like this in, in the gospel where Jesus doesn't do it right away. He, he kind of drags the whole thing out. Why is he doing that? The answer is, of course, that Jesus has not come just to resuscitate a man, bring him back to life so that he can live for another 30 years and then die. And he hasn't just come to make people walk who couldn't walk before or, or make them see who couldn't see before. Those are all great things to do for people, but they're not what he's come ultimately to do. He has come to do something far more wonderful, far greater for us than those things, no matter how marvelous those things are and no matter how much we would love him to do those things for us. Now, Martha, Martha hears him. She says in her reply, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha knows, I'm sure, about the huge debate within Judaism of the time. There were the progressive, we might call them liberals, the, the Sadducees, who denied the resurrection, like they denied angels and, and so on. They denied uh, life after death. And there were the conservative Pharisees who believed in it. And she sided with them in the sense that she believed what the Bible taught. And like every Bible-believing, devout Jew, she believed and was ready to confess that there would be a resurrection on the last day. And Martha's confession of faith in the article of resurrection was an essential step in the unfolding revelation of who Jesus is. Where was that faith based? Well, it was based in hints that we find in the Hebrew Scriptures that she would have heard read in the synagogue, like Deuteronomy 31, where Moses lies down with his fathers, or Isaiah 26, which says, your dead will live, the earth will give birth to the dead, or Isaiah 53, where the servant is, first of all, cut off from the land of the living, and yet, in spite of being cut off, that is, killed, nonetheless, his days are prolonged, and he produces seed which is interpreted in Isaiah 66 as God's new people who will live forever. Or in Daniel chapter 12, many of those who are sleeping in the dust of the earth shall awaken, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Resurrection was in the Bible. Martha believed the Bible. She believed God. And in the Bible too, in the book of Ezekiel, for example, you find resurrection is not just the physical resurrection on the last day, but it's the spiritual resurrection. The spiritual resurrection when men and women who are dead in their trespasses and sins and who are hostile to the things of God and are enemies of God and are blind to the realities of God are made alive quickened, brought to life, resurrected from spiritual death, and given spiritual life. Martha is on strong ground when she says, 
I know that he will rise again on the resurrection of the last days. So here's faith under trial. It's under trial not just from circumstances, but even from Jesus. It's under trial as Jesus puts the pressure on. But then secondly, we look at the training of faith because Jesus is now going to teach her something. The conversation moves in a different direction. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And the question, do you believe this? And this is an astonishing claim. He is picking up on Martha's confession of her belief in an abstract resurrection on the last day. And he's redirecting her belief, personalizing it, and directing it onto himself, the one who could make it happen. In other words, he takes her eyes away from Lazarus. She's preoccupied with her brother in this tomb down the road there. Takes her eyes away from Lazarus, turns her attention onto himself, uses this great I am formula taken right out of Isaiah, right out of Exodus, where God says, I am, I, I am. Applies it to himself, I, I am the resurrection, or literally, I am resurrection and life. Just as he had claimed to be the only food and drink that really matters, the only light and life that we need, the only shepherd and gate that we must know and follow. So now he says he is the resurrection and life. I want to tell you this is what you need. When you're sick, you may need a doctor, not a medical textbook. When you're being sued, you need a lawyer, not a book on jurisprudence. Never thought I'd see the day where I'd say, thank God for lawyers, but there you go. <laughs> when you're confronted with death, you want a savior, not a vaguely held platitude. Words themselves lack power and authority unless the one speaking those words can demonstrate his ability to do what he says. Jesus is turning their attention onto himself. He is making claims for himself. And he's about to back it up by some, this mighty action of raising Lazarus from the dead. He's turning her attention onto himself. When Jesus says, I am resurrection, he is saying this, I have risen power in me. You remember, I read at the very beginning of the service tonight from Revelation chapter 1, I am the first and the last and the living one. Jesus is saying that Resurrection is what He is. He is the power of resurrection life itself. He is in Himself the demonstration of the power of God that raises dead things to life. He has in His hands the power to break death. He has in His heart the intention 
that death will die at his hands. And the hope of resurrection finds its fulfillment in him. I am resurrection, he says. And I am life. That is a different quality of life. Life that never ceases. Life that is eternal. Life that's spiritual. Spiritual life. Do you know if you are here this evening and you're a Christian person and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're doing something the majority of people in this country do not do. Why is that? It's because you have been given resurrection life. You have felt the power of the resurrection life, what Paul calls the power of the resurrection. What he describes in the Ephesians 2 as being made alive when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You are a living, walking, talking. Not living doll. You are walking, talking example of the power of the resurrection life of Jesus. You know, behind the, the language of John 3, we noticed this when we were there. Behind the language of John 3, where we read about being born again, is the concept both of resurrection and new creation. And Jesus makes it clear that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what he means when he says this here in our text. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He has life. Believers right now share in the beginning fulfillment of this resurrection life. Let me read to you from John again, this same John, in 1 John chapter 5. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I, say, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I am resurrection and life. You have me, you have resurrection. Right away, spiritual resurrection, and to come, physical resurrection. To have me is to have resurrection, and it is to have life, life, spiritual life immediately, eternal life that begins now and is not interrupted by death. And what he's doing here is unpacking something he said earlier on in chapter 5. The hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear in faith shall live. Already this kind of resurrection is going on. And this life he gives cannot be interrupted by death. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. To believe in Jesus means that death lies defeated. To die for the Christian is to fall asleep here and to wake in glory. Biological death and decomposition does not interrupt the continuity of the living personal existence of God's people with God and with the Lord Jesus for even one nanosecond. Once a person believes, the life of the Spirit of God Himself is poured into them by the Spirit. And that life is eternal. 
And every believer has begun to experience that eternal life, even though we go through the transition of physical death. That death is not the cessation of life, because death cannot destroy the life of God in the soul of a person. There's an old hymn that has a phrase, so shall I never die. And that's actually true. When my grandfather was going to work one night, 1942, in Glasgow, in the middle of a bombing raid, and he passed one of his neighbors on his way to work, who said, looks like we're going to have a rough night tonight, Woody. One of the last remarks he was known to make was this. It's all right. Sudden death, sudden glory. And it was for him. The Lutheran German theologian Kohlbrugge writes this. When I die, and I do not die anymore, however, but when I die and someone finds my skull, let this skull still preach to him and say, I have no eyes, nevertheless I see him. Though I have no lips, I kiss him. I have no tongue, yet I sing praise to him with all who call upon his name. I am a hard skull, and yet I am wholly softened and melted by his love. I lay there, here, exposed on God's acre, yet I am in paradise. All suffering is forgotten. His great love has done this for us. When for us he carried his cross and went out to Golgotha. So shall I never die. Well, so Jesus is training, teaching the faith of Martha. But then the last little snippet in this dialogue, surrounding this thought of believing in faith, represents the testimony of faith. In fact, even the triumph of faith. Listen to Jesus again. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? He's asking her a question. Before he ever does anything, before he, before he goes near that tomb, before they know he's going to go near that tomb and raise their brother from the dead, he's asking her this question. This is why he'd come back to Bethany after such a long delay. It was to help them and to help us realize that what it, what it is that unites us to him and what it is that he means to do for us. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha 
has given us one of the clearest and most remarkable statements of faith in the entire Bible. She is an acute theologian. She has grasped the issues. She has listened to Jesus. And she has cottoned on to these realities. And the language suggests that she has a deeper grasp of who Jesus is than many of the others who followed him, including his own disciples. She has this unique insight into what it means for him. He is the one who is coming into the world, who has come into the world from the outside. He has come into the world. That's a remarkable thing. That sets Martha apart from many others. And when he asks her if she believes, you notice there's no hesitation. It's a spontaneous, uninhibited reply. Yes, you are. And I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And I want you to notice she's doing that before Jesus acts, before there's any indication he's going to act, before he's made any promises or used any body language that signifies what he's going to do, while he's still, in a, in a sense, prolonging the agony, refusing to give an explanation for his delay or explain what he's about. While he, they, she, Martha, is still in this tension point. Do you see? Which is why over the history of the church, God's people have looked at Martha right at this moment and thought, I know what that's like. That's where I am. I'm in that place where the questions aren't being answered, where the delays of love are not being explained where the disappointments are still fresh and sharp, where I'm not sure what's going on. That's where I am, where Martha is right at this moment. And yet, do you see her? Do you hear her? She confesses publicly that she believes he was who he said he was. And here is the nub of this. For Martha... Not even the death of her dearly loved brother, which Jesus could have prevented, could distract her from her faith in him. Unlike her, you may be in her position at this point and never see a resolution like she did. She sees it for our sakes so that we understand that all the time there is a purpose and there is a plan. And when love delays, it is a delay of love and not of teasing us or hurting us or wanting to injure us. And that God has His time and God has His purpose. Martha stands before us as a model believer who believes without seeing, who believes without understanding everything, who trusts in his mighty I am 
whatever it may mean, however it will pan out, however the outcome is brought about, she believes because she has met resurrection. Though she hasn't seen it yet, she has met resurrection and she has met life. And she sees that in him and she believes in him and she has eternal life. So, here's my question for you. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our godly sister, Martha, whom we shall one day meet. We thank you for her living experience of salvation, for the faith that she had in the Lord Jesus, a faith that persisted and persevered and trusted in spite of doubt and question and circumstance, a faith that could not be put off or pushed away, faith that was tested and tried, a faith that perhaps faltered, a faith that was perhaps as small as a mustard seed, but a faith that was prepared to testify, I believe. We pray that tonight we would be so worked upon by your Holy Spirit that whatever we are going through, whatever the testings in our lives, we would be by your grace able to say with Sister Martha, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. In his strong name we pray. Amen.